Welcome to Behavior Proofs. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. If this is your first episode of Behavioral Grooves that you've ever listened to, welcome. And we're here to tease out the why we do what we do out of all sorts of things in order to improve our work and home lives. And if you're a regular listener, please accept our gratitude for listening. We are glad that you're hanging out with us. And in case you didn't know this, I'm not sure how, we are coming up on our 100th episode. So we had a big, big celebration in Philadelphia last week, and we got to hang out with a bunch of our listeners in the same room, yeah. which was super cool. Yeah. We rarely get to sit down and have in-person conversations with the community of folks who listen to behavioral groups, so it was particularly fun for us. We also had three super cool guests. Woo-hoo. We had Annie Duke. Jeff Chrysler, and Michael Hallsworth on stage for the event and the 100th episode. It was, you know, it's going to be fabulous because, you know, we've already had it. We experienced it. We recorded it. It's going to be a great episode. So we want you to check that out. This also is a good time to reiterate our gratitude for our event sponsors, People Science and Podbean. Absolutely. We are very grateful for their support. And in addition to being excited about our 100th episode, we're excited about this one, our 95th episode. Absolutely. We are very excited about this because we got to reunite with an old friend of mine, Dr. Victoria Schaefer, who's a psychology researcher based at the University of Missouri, uh, to discuss some of her latest research on decision-making under end-of-life conditions. Uh, and it got very personal. Victoria and I met more than 10 years ago when she was researching how work performance changes under a variety of incentive reward conditions, and it was really fun catching up with her recently. Yeah, so we started the talk with some of that that old work that you and, and her had done about hedonic rewards compared to cash rewards, but then we quickly shifted into uh, more of Victoria's recent work, which is focused on the decisions we make in severe health circumstances, such as elderly care, or more specifically, how she and her family navigated the decisions around the end-of-life care for her father. It is a touching conversation that is both personal, and yet it provides a really clear lens in which we can see why we do what we do in these types of situations. Yeah, and on a personal basis, we greatly appreciate Victoria's openness to discuss this and are amazed at the insights that she was able to draw and share with us. With that, sit back, relax, and listen to our very interesting conversation with Dr. Victoria Schaefer. Victoria Schaefer, welcome to the Behavioral Grooves Podcast. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, it's so good to see you. Oh my gosh. Okay, we're going to start with a little speed round. All right. Okay. All right. So, uh, bike or unicycle? Which would you prefer? Bike. Which would you prefer to give up for the rest of your life? A phone or a laptop? Phone. All right. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Which makes a better reward, cash or a hedonic luxury? Hedonic luxury. All right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was a tee up. It was a tee up. So uh, this goes back to some of your earliest research. Can you tell us a little bit about why that is the case and under what circumstances uh, cash is, is outpaced by, by something that's not cash? Sure. So this goes back to my dissertation. Um, and this is something that I was interested in uh, when I was at Ohio State many, many years ago. Um, but one of the things that I noticed reading through the literature was that, you know, it goes back to this principle that a lot of people, people in general, um, don't understand 
what they're best motivated by. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we choose one thing, but often the optimal choice is another thing. And so if we think about this in the context of performance and motivating performance and providing incentives, um, you, it would be rational to say, hey, let's ask the employee, what would they like to have? Um, what kind of rewards would be most rewarding to them? And when you do that, people say, oh, I'd like to have cash every time, hands down. However, when you look at performance relative to the different kinds of incentives you could provide, people generally underperform when you give them cash relative to um, something fun that they wouldn't buy for themselves, like a spa trip or a gift card to a luxurious restaurant or something of that nature. So I've generally been interested in this principle of we don't have a lot of great insight into the things that motivate and affect our behavior. Um, and that was one really interesting example to me for a while. Why is that? Why, why don't we have a better insight into our own motivations? I don't know that we know the why for sure. Um, there's a paper by um, Shelley Taylor many years ago uh, that I thought was really interesting, which suggested that a lot of these biases we have have a self-serving purpose. And so one of the things that kind of goes along with this is that we tend to be very overconfident in our abilities. Um, and so this is one of the things that we're, we don't have really good insight into our true abilities in a lot of things. And we tend to think we're better at driving, at you know, any kind of skill we can think of, shooting a basket, right? Um, we're all above average is how we view ourselves. And in this paper, she talked about how folks with clinical depression actually tend to have much more accurate uh, perceptions about what they're capable of. Um, and so there's been some thought that maybe some of this is just kind of a self-protective mechanism, that it would be really depressing to know exactly all of these true things about our nature and ourselves. Um, so I don't know that anybody knows per se, but that seems to be how we're wired. That's an interesting component. I need to research up on that. But the fact that the more realistic you are about your abilities and different things is a uh, correlated to depression. you know psychological depression <laughs> yeah which, at least in this in this interesting paper so that, uh. that's fascinating so well i know that you haven't been necessarily working on uh, cash versus non-cash uh for the no. most of your career what have you been what what is some of the more recent work that you're doing because you're doing some really cool stuff with uh some end-of-life care from from what we've talked about yeah, so I transitioned from uh, this more business-related work to medical decision-making, but the same principles are at play, and that's what I think is interesting to me, these underlying principles about how we make decisions for ourselves and how we don't often have insight into the best mechanisms for making these decisions, or we don't know what's the most useful piece of information. So a lot of the psychological mechanisms are the same across my topics of interest, but um, I slowly shifted over towards an interest in medical decision-making. Um, my advisor in graduate school, who I did the dissertation research with, also did work um, in medical decision making, and uh, I really liked the applied application. Um, you that, know, the idea that was, that, that was Hal Arcus, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Hal Arcus. Yeah. Um, and so, as I kind of came into my own as a researcher, um, I ended up looking at more of those kinds of choices that I thought had really important real world impacts. And it seems like that was a place where decision psychologists hadn't been. Um, in these medical decisions. So there's a lot of other spaces of decision-making in marketing and business and whatnot that decision psychology has historically been a strong part of. Um, and medicine, it was a place where it seemed like, you know, we could really fill some gaps in um, what I saw to be some of the issues with medical decision-making. So I've been, had a longstanding interest in that concept. Um, and then more recently, so I've been helping create decision support tools for patients um, who are making decisions around cancer care and decision support tools for physicians 
who are helping to support patients who are making decisions. Cancer has been one place um, that I've operated, one context for a while. And, um, and can, can you give us an example of, of what a decision support tool is? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for letting me clarify that because I just threw some jargon right at you. Um, <laughs> So there are a lot of decisions in the medical field that are what decision psychologists call preference sensitive. So that means there isn't a single medical treatment option that it clearly wins. Um, there are actually multiple treatment options that are very similar in terms of their clinical outcomes, and they have very different pros and cons to individual patients. And so in that case, the doctor can't say, hey, here's the best treatment. You should just have that. Rather, they typically say, hey, here are three treatments they are fairly equivalent in their effectiveness, but they each have different um, harms and benefits. And it's really up to you as the patient to figure out what best suits your needs, your interests, your preferences. And so that's a really hard thing to do. That's been a big shift in how we ask patients to make decisions in the last 20 years from being the person who just does what the doctor asks to being the person who has to make the decision with all of this complicated information being thrown at them. So broadly, decision support tools are created for that context when there's a real choice that the patient has to make, um, and it helps them kind of get up to speed with the physicians. It gives them the information about the data that we know whether it exists or not, if there's uncertainty in the data. Um, it tries to present statistical information the best way possible so we know better now about how to communicate risk in a, a way that is more understandable to patients. And so we use a lot of those premises and tools to construct a um, often it's an online forum, but it used to be paper-based, um, mm -hmm. but something that patients can have that can help them be informed before they try to make these difficult choices. Are there culturally, are there cultural differences in, uh, these decision tools or maybe, maybe let me ask it this way. Are there cultural differences in the way that these decisions are made, um, you know, w w between patients and physicians? Yes. Um, I don't, it's not an area that I spend a lot of time operating in, but for sure, um, some of the things, some of the research that I have read suggests that that's very much the case. Um, generally, the U.S. is a, you know, now we've sort of shifted over the last 20 years to be a place where the patient wants to take the lead in decision making. But even within the U.S., there are age differences in that. So many older adults, that has not historically been the way they operated with their physician. Um, and it feels very uncomfortable to them to change that. So even in the context of you know the U.S. environment, um, there are a number of differences in how patients really want, you know, whether they want to be the decision maker or not. But um, absolutely, there are cultural differences. I there's a book by Atul Gawande called Being Mortal, um, mm. and his family is from India, and he describes how in that particular cultural setting, you actually don't generally even tell the patient the prognosis. You tell the family members. They make decisions, they do stuff, and the patient's kind of kept in the dark. Um, and so, you know, there clearly are, you know, different ways to approach decision-making in medicine um, across the globe, but even within the U.S. as well. So you mentioned this uh, up at the beginning, like, that you're, you're really studying how people don't understand what they're motivated by or some of the mm -hmm. outcome components of this. And so these decision support tools, uh, are you using those to help people to better understand how their, you know, the, their long-term satisfaction with, with the outcome, how, how, are they, how are they being utilized from, from that perspective? Is that part of it? Yeah, so there's, there's a couple of basic pieces. I think one first premise is when you're first diagnosed with something, and we can just take cancer as an example, there's an information gap. 
between mm-hmm. you and the physician. And so a large part of this is simply informational, right? How can we present the knowledge that a patient needs to get up to speed? You know, this physician has all this history and knowledge. Um, and so can we winnow it down to critical elements that a patient needs to be informed about? Um, and then beyond that, we also know that there are a number of psychological processes that come into play that can bias our decisions. So one in particular that I've been interested in is affective forecasting. And so we make affective forecasting errors, and that, again, is a more general phenomenon, which means that we are pretty poor at predicting how we'll feel in a future state. Um, And that applies to medical decisions as well. So a lot of times, you know, we're, you know, we have to make a choice between treatment A and treatment B, and we heard what the side effects are, but it's really hard for us to imagine how we're going to feel experiencing those side effects. And so, um, one of the more controversial aspects of a decision aid, but that I've been interested in exploring is providing stories from other patients that can help try to um, fill in that gap. So here's some experiential information. So in addition to, you know, what is it like to experience, um, say, when you have radiation or chemotherapy, sometimes you get sores in your mouth, right? And so it's one thing to say to somebody, you could get sores in your mouth. And another thing for another patient to say, I couldn't eat anything. It hurt so bad. I couldn't move my mouth. I could only mumble. Um, that's what it feels like to have sores in my mouth. Right. Um, and so a lot of times there's this disconnect between what, you know, how we would describe the concept of a side effect or something you might live with and then what it feels like to have that. So I think that's one element where decision aids can also help, um, with these psychological challenges to making decisions. And we're still working on that. We're still, I'm interested personally in narratives and testing whether in the long run, they do improve people's ability to, forecast these future health behaviors, but, so, um, so some, you said yeah. that there, you said that there's some controversy over adding those patient narratives as part of this. What's the controversy part? Cause it seems pretty straightforward it to does. me. I mean, yeah. as I'm listening to Give you, I'm going, info. I would want yeah. to understand what, you know, yeah. mouth soreness and what it really impacts. Right. And I think it goes yeah. back into, you know, some of the components of, as you said, we're not good at forecasting what, what, uh, you know, that affective component and, you know, just having understanding how other people have experienced things is a better predictor than our own kind of judgment out on that most of the time. So. Yes. I think the, um, the controversy comes in when you have to pick stories. So Mm. whose story gets chosen and is that representative of the experiences? If, you know, sometimes we end up choosing a, really severe side effect because we want people to understand it, but it's something that's really unlikely to occur. And when we do that, we can actually um, make people feel like experiencing that side effect is more likely than it actually is. And so we can mess with how people perceive the risk of things by what stories we tell them, um, where in the, you know, if you can think of the distribution of possible experiences, you know, where do you select from that distribution? Um, Usually you only have time in a decision aid for a couple of stories, and then it becomes, you know, whose story? And then that's where people start to argue, right? Well, you're going to, if you give them that story, they're never going to want to choose X treatment because all they're going to hear about is this 1% side effect <laughs> and they're, it's going to really scare them, you know, whereas 99% of people don't get that. And that's a, you know, so there's a lot of concern about bias mm. um, when you talk about stories. So if you have a health state where there's more of a uniform experience, it's a lot easier. Like uniformly people experience X, it hurts, or this is what it's like. Um, it, but it, my favorite example is childbirth, right? Every birth story is unique. So is it helpful 
for me when I was pregnant to hear every other woman's birth story. <laughs> Probably not, because that for sure is not going to happen to me. Um, so that's, you know, that's where it comes in. It's like, I, you know, if you, when do you share stories? When are they helpful? When can they be harmful and biasing? Um, and we're kind of sketching that out. Mm. Interesting. So, yeah, there are a lot of there's a lot of trouble. I mean, a lot of challenges, I suppose, in in trying to help patients and uh, physicians in this decision process, right? I mean, there really are some some big challenges yes. that go along with. Well, actually, you you you're enumerating the the, the problems. What what other issues do you see with this? Or what, well, what are I the think, core issues that you see with it? Yeah, I mean, I think all of it relates to framing. Um, framing effects and information presentation effects and bias. And so with the narratives, it's really easy to see how bias can be introduced by which story you select. Um, but there are other elements of sharing information that feel much more objective, but can also be equally biasing. So for example, if we think about how we present probabilistic information, mm -hmm. um, if I say something has a 10% chance of occurring, that actually feels less risky to people than if I say a one in 10 chance of occurring or a 10 in a hundred chance of occurring. Cause if I say a 10 in a hundred chance of occurring, you're like, wow, there's 10 people that had that thing. That sounds so scary. And 10% actually feels less scary, but mathematically these are equivalent. And so even, you know, in how we choose to talk about risk, um, we can introduce bias or change how people feel about something. And it's unclear what's the right, presentation, right? What's the right way somebody should feel about it? Should you feel like a one out of 10 risk or should you feel like a 10% risk? What, you know, what best maps on? And so then also things like order, like the order effects of information. What do you present first? What do you present last? We know that that has an influence on how people make decisions. Um, and again, so these are things that feel less, um, less obvious, you know, to people, but all of these things kind of come into play when you're trying to communicate information and you want to be unbiased about it. You want to say, here's the fair, you know, here's everything you choose, but every decision you make about how you present it has some slant to it. Um, and some are more obvious than others. It's, it's interesting to me that you said that, you know, this decision science part hasn't been part of this medical kind of world because it seems that the question, like what you were just talking about, are really important components of how that that doctor patient interaction is and I'm pretty sure that most doctors are not thinking about this in this way and yeah. so you know and they want to be able to do this but it's those are big issues of you know life and death or health and various different things versus you know are you selling a candy bar for 28 cents or you know a dollar 50 cents or whatever that would be so <laughs> yeah right. so my, my 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 analogy probably is not the best there but <laughs> all right but it is interesting because the psychological principles i'm talking about have been around for a long time you know information yeah. effects right yeah. so it's not that we're learning kind of new things per se but it's you know, this is a place where it really matters and we should really be thinking about it. Um, Peter Ubel, I don't know if he's a physician that who you know of, he dabbles in, um, more than dabbles, he does a lot of uh, behavioral economics and he's at Duke. Um, and he wrote a book called Critical Decisions. And he was really, he is particularly critical about the medical school curriculum and how it does not, you know, it has all of this very um, deep focus on pathology and biology and, um, you know, all of, the, all of those kind of neurocellular level sorts of things and practically no focus on risk communication, relationships. Um, how do you get, how do you have a hard conversation? You know, he describes when people are first asked to give bad news, it's often like, Oh, Hey, here's the intern, your turn, go, you know, go 
you know, good luck. Go give somebody this bad news that they're dying and see <laughs> how it goes, God. you know, and it's sort of trial by fire. Yeah. yeah. And so there really is, I mean, I, it is a place where we could be doing so much better because we know a lot of great information um, and it's just about making it into part of this culture. So when you're talking to physicians, uh, I'm, I'm curious about two, two conversations. One is when you see this with patients, what kind of effects do you see? How do they respond? And, and what about physicians? Uh, I remember you, you, you did a study on, on defaults with uh, physicians. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and as I recall, um, when, the, when the default was to have all of the tests checked, the physicians were more likely to prescribe more tests. And yet they said, no, 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 no. That's that couldn't be me because I'm a physician. I'm a professional in this in this realm. And you can't tell me that I would prescribe more just because you defaulted to to all of them. Um, Yeah, it turns out physicians are human, too. And somehow like that, (laughs) that was missed for a really long time. So all you know, expertise doesn't override a lot of these basic biases that we talk about. And I think that might be surprising to people that we haven't really dealt, you know, gotten into that, that there's there, you know, we're still human. And even if you have great clinical expertise, these things like the default, you know, still meaningfully matter. So in that study, this was a great study by a PhD student of mine. This is his dissertation. And um, he created an electronic medical record interface mock-up. So it was designed to look like um, the interface of this medical record in a children's mercy hospital in Kansas city. And so he was interested in how we could influence what orders physicians put in. Mm-hmm. And so he created three different conditions. One was just sort of the status quo. You could you need to just check the things that you want to order. One, as Tim mentioned, was everything was pre-selected, so you had to uncheck it. And then the third was we got a group, a panel of experts on a few different disease topics, and we said, what would be the recommended tests and orders that you would place for a patient who was suspected to have you know, X particular illness. And so then there would be meaningful defaults that were selected. Um, And so you would think, you know, from a sort of neoclassical economics perspective, it shouldn't matter if everything was checked or nothing was checked, that you should have an idea of the optimal order set and you should do that or not do that. Um, But when we checked everything, there were, I'm trying to remember the exact number. I want to say it was like two to three tests on average more that were ordered per fictitious patient. So we had these little mock cases that a physician would read and then go through and um, order, make orders for patients based on this description of information, much like you would in an emergency room situation. Yep. So there were, there were more tests that were ordered, but that wasn't necessarily a good thing because they weren't necessarily the recommended tests. And so you know, our argument was that the best version of this was the third condition that had the recommended test pre-selected because they didn't order statistically more tests than the control condition who had no pre-selected ones, but they were more likely to choose the ones that the experts deem to be appropriate. Um, so you get less bloating and cost and you get more accurate choice. But again, you know, this is, um, these are physicians who have really great expertise and it's just, these are just not things that you can keep in your brain all the time. You are going to be influenced particularly when you're working on the fly by all these heuristics that, you know, we all are influenced by. So, yeah. So, uh, so do they, if physicians are humans too, and I guess they really are, that do they they take to these ideas and suggestions and the work that you're doing with open arms and, oh my gosh, we're so glad to be trying uh, something different and to improve the relationships that we have with our clients and improve the decision-making, or is there some resistance? Generally, I think physicians want to do that. You know, their goal is not to harm their patients at all whatsoever, Right. 
Um, I think the challenge is how do we do that? And does that um, change the way they're doing things and, you know, change the way they operate with the environment or their patients? And so sometimes when we, when changes are suggested and they have to change their clinical workflow or work around something, a lot of times these changes make life more difficult. And so Mm -hmm. um, that's when I think people get really irritated. Is this really helpful? Do I have to actually rework my whole clinical workflow to get this in there? Um, and so, for example, if you take the idea of the pre-selected defaults that are informed, that takes a lot of effort to develop a national panel. People are going to be lobbying about which of these things should be pre-selected because they're more likely to be chosen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the American College of Radiologists will have a, you know, we really want the, you know, the, anything with x-rays to be pre-selected, right? Um, so <laughs> when you actually get into the nuts and bolts of it, it is a, it's a challenging thing to do. So you have to have, you know, for the example of the pre-selected defaults, um, you know, they have to be best choices there and there's not always best choices. And then what happens when you don't have a clear cut clinical case, um, you know, which defaults apply and who gets to choose the defaults. Right. Um, so those are all, you know, again, it's, it's in the details. I think, uh, physicians are open to the concept of improving decision-making for sure. Um, but then it's like, how do we actually put this into play? And that's where I found things to be much more difficult when you have things like decision aids, if it takes, you know, people are concerned it's going to make the visit take longer, you know, we're going to have to have all this discussion. Um, and so those are the kinds of, of things where people start to get a little, you know, uninterested in, in these new advances. So relative to the patient, is the patient more open, different? How, how did the patients respond to these relative to, to the doctors? I think patients generally are excited about this. Um, you know, again, I think there are individual differences in preference for involvement in decision-making. Um, and so part of the way the field has tried to understand um, this concept of shared decision-making, which is, you know, these decisions are now shared between a physician and a patient. So this is a dyadic decision versus a unilateral one. Um, is They want to assess with patients, how much do you want to be involved? Um, and more often than not, patients really do want to be involved and they like taking ownership of their choices. Um, so broadly, this is something that is well received for patients. What, um, let's get back to, uh, end of life stuff, the stuff that you're working on now, Victoria, can you, can can you share with the listeners a little bit about, uh, what you're working on right now? Yes. So I am really interested in how to promote Uh, advanced care planning and discussions about patients' preferences at the end of life. Um, This was a particularly sort of personal shift for me in research agenda. Um, In December of 2017, my father was diagnosed with stage four oral cancer. Mm. Um, And it was, it was an interesting, at the time I thought, oh gosh, I can help. Like this is the thing I can, you know, as a daughter, like um, I don't have a lot of skills that are going to be helpful to aging parents, but this one, you know, I can do. Um, and so I can help them sift through the literature. I can help them understand all of these, you know, the data. I can help them understand, you know, all of these kinds of things that are going to be confusing and overwhelming. Um, and then when we got into it, I realized I was actually not very helpful at all. And there's still a lot that we need to be able to do. So, for example, um, pretty quickly, because the cancer was so advanced when my dad was diagnosed, he had to make some treatment decisions. And we did not have very much time to do that. Um And so one of the things that we had to make our decisions based on was physicians' best judgments about um, the chances that my dad would survive given the different treatment options. Um, And 
while there was some data that existed, so he had stage four oral cancer um, in a five-year a five-year timeline for survival, only 25% of patients survived. And so in his is clearly pretty aggressive because in a few months it had gone from a toothache to it had, you know, sort of gone through in his jaw and there's bone involvement. So we had to make decisions. The first one was pretty easy. He needed to have his jaw replaced and he, you know, he felt like that was a straightforward, yes, it hurts. I'm ready to do that. But mm-hmm. after that, we had to make a decision once he healed from you know, so they took a bone out, they, they removed his jaw, they took a bone out of his leg and tra- and implanted that into his face. And it was this whole 14-hour procedure. And oh. so he had to recover from that. Yeah, it was it was really tough for, you know, just the surgery alone was was a big deal. And then after he recovered from that, it's so about six weeks later, we he had to make a choice about whether he wanted to undergo chemotherapy and radiation. Mm. And so the surgery alone was not going to be enough, particularly because when they went in, they realized that his lymph nodes... Um, it had already spread to his lymph nodes. His lymph, one lymph node had actually, um, there was evidence that it had gone past that lymph node as well. And so it was probably, you know, circulating. And so they were pretty um, certain that if he wanted to have any chance of surviving, he would have to have chemotherapy and radiation. And so in my read of the literature, um, it, it was it was a really depressing read because it didn't seem to have a huge benefit. And in fact, so the, the survival rate, you know, was not very much larger in the group that underwent chemotherapy and radiation. And, but in fact, it was a really, really painful, you know, course of illness. So this was going to be concurrent chemotherapy and radiation for six weeks. Um, And when you have radiation to the face, um, it has a whole lot of other additional things. And so, you know, I could read and bring to the table this information, but what we couldn't figure out was, you know, how likely was my dad to survive given this additional, you know, sort of treatment. So we had to make these trade-offs of, do you want to endure this really difficult, painful procedure? And if so, what's the likelihood that you would survive afterwards? And so, you know, we asked our, his first, the radiation oncologist at the hospital here. And he said, um, first, he, nobody ever volunteered this information. So to me, this is like, this is the thing I want to know, but no one volunteers it. And so I said, you know, what do you think my dad's chances of survival are? Were you going to say something? Well, I got to ask why? Why wasn't that volunteered? Why wasn't uh, that is that, that not, seems like yeah. th- doesn't that seem like sort of a natural like okay, let, let's talk about the odds here. You would think so, but um, physicians are very reluctant to discuss prognosis, and part of it is because they're going to be wrong. You know, mm, it is sure. a probabilistic judgment, um, and people, you know, it, and it comes back to bite them a lot when they get real specific, um, and so I think that's part of it. But there's a real reluctance to give bad information. And there's a perception that patients want hope and want people to be positive. Mm-hmm. And so when you have bad news to give, you're diminishing those things. And so there's um, there's a real bias towards um, either overestimating survival or not even discussing it at all. So I had to ask in each situation, what do you think his survival, chances of survival are? And so the first radiation oncologist at first asked my dad, do you want to know? Because I'm not just going to answer her question. I want to know if you want to hear this. And he said, okay, yeah, okay. And he said, I don't think it's very high, single digits, um, maybe 8% at the most. So he would go through six weeks of chemotherapy and radiation concurrently for an 8% chance of survival. Um, He for sure wasn't going to survive without it, but he only had an 8% in his perception. Um, but then, so my dad started thinking, maybe I don't want to do this. I don't know if it's worth it. 
um, because it's a real, I think the chemotherapy and the radiation were worse than the surgery. Um, cause when you have radiation to the face, you just get this second and third degree burn all over here and it can, um, take your, uh, parietal gland as well. So you have difficulty, you don't, uh, your salivary glands get destroyed and so you can't swallow. And, you know, there's a whole eating becomes a problem. A lot of people need a feeding tube and, it's a huge quality of life thing that no one wanted to talk about. Again, that was the other thing that no one was talking about. What does it feel like to have chemotherapy and radiation? And so I kept asking these questions that I just felt like should for sure be on the table, you know? Um, so my dad, and after having this initial conversation was thinking he might want to forgo this. Um, and his surgeon then heard about it and she said, well, I think your chance of survival of chemotherapy and radiation is like 40 to 50%. Like, I think you need to go for this. I don't think you should not do this. Um, and so it, and it was like, oh, who's right? You know, yeah. how do we evaluate oh, boy, this? That's, yeah, that's, that sounds really troublesome to have yeah. two, to competing have these two competing. Doctors. Yeah. yeah. And then we went to a second opinion. So I went down to MD Anderson Cancer Center, and they have a slightly different version of uh, radiation um, that they're promoting. And the physician there, radiation oncologist there, thought my dad was more likely 60% chance of survival. And so again, it's um, how, how do you evaluate, right? Who is going to be correct? And which place do you do treatment then? Um, and so what really troubled me was that there was no basis for making this decision. There was no data to support any of their, um, you know, prognostic estimates. And so, you know, I could only look at the the data and the literature, which suggested that he was probably more in line with the first 8% guy. Um, and I could only look at the, the data on prognostic information literature, which suggests that physicians tend to actually double uh, their estimates. So not necessarily consciously, but they give twice as long prognostic estimates than people actually live for, or twice as long chance than people actually have. So I know that physicians naturally are more positive than is accurate. Um, and I know that, you know, the five the five-year survival rate with stage four cancer is 25% and even less with all the characteristics that my father had with the idea that it had spread already. Um, but that was the only thing I could offer. You know, I don't know how else to help him choose between these competing opinions and these different facilities who so, all... Yeah. So yeah, were yeah. you willing to be more dismissive of MD Anderson 60% and the, and the surgeons 40 to 50%? Were you, could, could you step back sort of objectively and say, no, actually the literature is really leading us in a different direction? Well, I, you know, it's interesting. So this is, the, this is what decision psychologists struggle with. There's this trade-off between the, you know, sort of epidemiological literature, the population, and then the individual patient sitting in front of you. So I would say, well, why are you so positive given the literature suggests that, you know, the base rate of survival is just even base rate, you know, not considering his pathological history with respect to the, you know, cancer spreading. Um, why, why are you so positive? And they said, well, you know, he's in really good health. You know, everybody else who has oral cancer tends to be drinkers and smokers, and he was never any of those things. And, uh, you know, so they had, they each had these really individual reasons. Um, and again, you know, I got no, there's no data to support that. You know, the vast majority of people who have oral wow. cancer are heavy drinkers and smokers and so, or have HPV. And so, you know, he did not. So does that mean he was actually going to be better off or maybe it was worse because, you know, because it, was, it was a different, it, it developed yeah. an absence of this, these risk factors. Um, 
And so that was really tough. Even when I pushed back a little bit, they had reasons that sounded reasonable. Um, And I knew probably, you know, just from the larger literature, probably were not accurate in the sense of, I know people tend to overestimate. And so this is probably still represented in overestimation and just the justification of the overestimation. But I had no reason for saying you're wrong, you know. So your experience in this, given your background and your history, and like you said, when you started this, it's like, oh, I have something to offer here because you have this background in this. The I would, I would estimate that 99.5% of the rest of the population isn't going to be even thinking about some of these things that you're doing. And so they're just yeah. going with that first component. So, so what is some of the research that, I mean, so, so what did you come, come out of this and, and how is it being uh, applied in what you're, you're doing now? Well, I came out of this first thinking we need to be collecting more data. You know, so for all of the people we interacted with, they had judgments that they were giving and they presumably did this for every patient that asked on a regular basis all the time. And they were not writing down their predictions, right? Mm. Um, And they weren't writing down, you know, so one thing that you could do as a physician is say, okay, I said 10% for this person and these reasons, you know, these were the characteristics of that person that made me think that. Let's let's record that. Let's record that for every patient that comes through that I can make a, a decision. And let me see the base rate of success in my own patients. Let me see, you know, how does that, you know, fit relative to patients that, you know, in the larger population. And um, so there's a lot of data that each individual physician could be keeping that could allow them to make a more informed. It doesn't have to be from the gut. Um, and people aren't willing to, that's not part of our culture in medicine right now is to keep these kinds of judgments as part of the data, right? Because people also, physicians also tend to think of this as providing patients hope. So mm-hmm. if I give them the more positive number, you know, there's even some conscious upward skew as well, which is I want to give my patients hope and patients want hope and they don't want me to be totally, you know, most pessimistic, worst case scenario guy. They want me to be best case scenario guy. So I think we can do better not changing anything, but collecting more data. Um, but that definitely goes against the culture of um, physicians, again, being hope givers and life givers and not being, you know, sort of particularly accurate or right on the nose. Well, it goes back um, to what we talked about at the very beginning with, you know, the, the, the depressive, you know, people with depression have a more realistic view of their abilities and different things. And, and to that component, offering hope is, you know, allowing these people, you know, potentially, yeah, it might be not as realistic, but is that quality of life at the end with that, you know, feeling of hope better than, than, than not. And I get those, those are judgment calls, I, I would suppose, and probably some of the stuff that you're looking into. Yeah. And so it's, it's, it was just a real, yeah, personally, it was, it was a real frustrating place to be in. And I should tell you how the story ends. Mm-hmm. Um, so that we can kind of step through the consequences of that. Um, so my dad ended up choosing to go to MD Anderson where he got the most positive prognosis. Um, and so he did six weeks of chemotherapy and radiation. He had to, um, they had to move down there and I flew down, you know, every other week and, um, he got really, really sick. He lost 30 pounds. He couldn't talk by the end. It hurt too much. When we drove him home, you know, back to Missouri, he was, just probably the worst I'd ever seen him in terms of his quality of life. 
Um, and he was really miserable. He was taking fentanyl and um, all kinds of opioids, you know, to just make it through the day. Um, and so, um, you know, he got through that. And then six weeks later, um, he called me. It was in June. So he, he got finished his treatment mid-April. First week in June, he called me. My mom had gone out for the first time to a book club with her friends. It was the first night she had left him. And he said he thought he was having a heart attack because he was having really bad chest pain and back pain. And so I, we got him and we took him to the emergency room. And it turned out that the cancer had recurred and it actually fractured his back. And that was the intense pain that he had. And so it, it recurred so quickly and spread and grew a tumor so large that it fractured a vertebrae, which was the thing that was calling him this, causing him this intense pain. Uh-huh. So six weeks later, it had returned with such intensity um, that it had already fractured his spine. And, um, then at that point in time, there just wasn't anything left to do. So he, he died two months after the cancer Mm. recurred. And I really struggled with, he, did he have to go through all of that? You know, he went through all of this chemotherapy and radiation and it was absolutely miserable for him. Um, and then he died two months later, you know, and if we had, if, if he had gotten more accurate prognosis, would he have gone through that? Um, and, you know, we can never know. You know, yeah. we can never know if those individual point estimates were accurate because, you know, the person said 60%, maybe he was one of the 40%. Um, but without data, you know, I think we'll never be able to make better informed choices. And so that's part of my frustration. I, you know, we were able to, I was able to kind of emotionally move past that because my dad made his own decision. You know, he felt like at the end, um, you know, he was like, Hey, I weighed the choices and this is what I chose. And I'm, I don't regret it. And everyone tried their best and wanted to give me the best quality of life. And this is just the roll of the dice, you know, for me right now. So I don't think there was any resentment there, but I I did struggle a little bit to think, I don't know that he needed to go through that. Um, and so that's definitely, um, it has encouraged me to think more about, let's have these conversations. How can we promote having these conversations where we talk about prognosis, where we talk about what is the course of the disease? Um, we don't wait for patients to ask. We, you know, we have these things earlier. We ask people how they, to think about how they're going to feel um, so that the choices, you know, don't occur too late. So as the one thing that I could do um, as the daughter of somebody who studies medical decision-making, I know that um, people tend not to have these conversations about what their preferences are until the very, very end. And it makes it difficult because oftentimes when those conversations need to occur, the patient's now non-responsive and they can't make the decisions. And so the family member has to come alongside and make them for them. So the, the one piece that I knew is that we need to have, we need to have these conversations, you know, when you get to the point of, um, you know, we have to make choices for your health. What, do you, what choices do you want me to make? What are guiding principles that are important to you? And so part of my research now is trying to promote this advanced care planning earlier in the course of the disease. Is this, um, is this a tantamount to uh, uh, medical directives that, 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 that people, at least in the U.S., you know, fill yeah. out pretty regularly to say, if I get to this point, please do this? That's a great question. And I, do, I dislike the advanced directives. Um, so I think that's a really good clarification is that I don't think advanced directives are the solution. I think this is more of a conversation about goals. And so the reason I think that is that advanced directives are very specific. I don't know if you've had the occasion to fill one out, but they ask you, you know, if your heart stops, do you want to have CPR? If your heart stops, do you want to have, 
you know, and there's sort of this go- this list of very specific things. Um, and the challenge is that most of the time, we the choices that a family member has to make for a patient are choices that has to be made when they can't speak for themselves are not ones that you've discussed. And so the advanced directives are very specific and they really require you to, again, affective forecasting is a problem here. Um, you don't know what you're often going to want until you want it. So what can we do instead? And um, what I'm advocating for is, this is not new to me, but I'm, uh, there are a group of researchers that are advocating for goals of care discussions instead. So you have these regular ongoing goals that you say, what are your goals for your treatment? So we'll never be able to walk through all of your very specific choices that we'll have to make. But if I know your broad overarching goals, I can make decisions based on that. So for example, with my father, the two goals for his treatment that he identified were one, he didn't want to place extra burden on my mom. And number two is that he wanted, um, towards the end, he wanted pain relief to be the most important thing. Earlier, he was willing to trade off any kind of life extending measure for more pain. But towards the end, he said, you know, at this point, I just want to be as pain free as possible. Um, So when he became unresponsive, we had to make some choices um, about what would make him more comfortable. And we were able to kind of go back to those, you know, particularly guiding principles. So for example, when towards the end, his cognitive function um, was diminished and he was confused and he didn't know what was happening. And so we had the hospice nurse came in and she said, do you want to put in a catheter? It's going to be uncomfortable. He's going to be scared, but I think he's really uncomfortable. I think he has to go to the bathroom, but doesn't know and doesn't know how anymore. And this will make him more comfortable, but it's, you know, he's not, it's going to be a little bit of a challenge to do this. And so my mom and I said, okay, well, let's think about those guiding principles, right? What, what was important to him? Well, one is discomfort. While it might cause him more discomfort in the moment, I think he's going to feel better. And then two, this will make it easier for you because, you know, she was having to clean up a lot of incontinence issues. And so this, you know, this would be, this would fit both of those things. And so we decided to go ahead and do that. And that was sort of how I think these things can operate. You know, we, we never had a specific conversation about whether he wanted to have a catheter at any point in time. Um, But you need those principles to kind of guide that. So I think that's very different than an advanced directive, which is very specifically oriented um, and is going to, I think, bring up more issues than it's actually going to be helpful. But the goals of care are more, again, around these broad guidelines and then identifying the person who you want to implement those for you when you're not able to communicate. So, Victoria, you you talked about how those goals kind of changed as as your father was going through this. Have you looked at before people even get a disease, is there is there any benefit for people, it you know, who are healthy at this point to start saying, well, at some point I, I, I may end up in, in a situation like this and here's the types of goals? Or is that so distant, so far removed from what is actually happening that it doesn't really have any relevance once that actual disease, whether it's cancer or heart disease or whatever else is coming into the into the equation? Yeah, that's, and that's a tough one because that's where people who are not proponents of goals of care discussions would say, you're never going to know. You need to have just-in-time decision-making. We don't, if we do anything in advance, you're going to be making predictions for yourself um, that, aren't, that may not be accurate once you actually get there. Um, and I think, so I think I would push back and say, there is value to having an ongoing regular series of conversations. So this can't be a single 
decision that you make when you're healthy and 20. And then when you're 80, people are, you know, saying, Hey, she said she never wanted advanced, you know, wanted a CPR or, or wanted all the things. Um, so clearly there's evidence that we do change over the course of age and illness about what, what our preferences are. And they think the best process would be, you know, a relationship, an ongoing relationship with your care provider who routinely asks you to kind of update and share how you're feeling about these kind of trade-offs that you would make. Um, so yeah, I think there is danger in thinking you can do an advanced directive one time and then it solves all of our problems because there is real issue with affective forecasting. And then there's also experience, you know, for a lot of people when they get cancer the first time, they're willing to do a lot of heroic things. And then later they go, I'm not, I'm, I can't do that again. I can't do yeah. that anymore. You know, and it changes. Um, I don't know if that's an affective forecasting error or if they're, if people are really willing to try it one time, but then not again, you know. There's clearly a, um, you know, a change over time and what we think is important and what we want that needs to be captured there. So there, there, that is the danger. It sounds like it's more, this is, this is like more than one study. I mean, there are, there's a whole body of research that needs to be developed here. Yeah. And I think, so if I could outline kind of the pieces that I think need to be done, you know, folks have done research on prognostic information. So how well the physicians, you know, predict how long you have left to live and what are your chances of living. Um, And physicians are pretty poor prognostic indicators. But we know that they are biased in a particular direction, which is they tend to suggest you have more life to live or will, you know, are more likely to survive than you actually will. Um, So what can we do to improve prognostic estimates, right? Those are pieces of information that decision makers probably want to have. Um, So I think kind of the first input is what can we do? Are there algorithms that we can use? Um, And there are, there's some, some very, there are better prognostic algorithms um, that can be used and brought to bear in the process. Um, And then how do you communicate about it, right? When, when do you start talking about prognosis? When do you talk about the side effects? How do you talk about the side effects? How do you talk about risk of the side effects? How do you present information? So beyond decision tools on a conversation level, can we train physicians, primary care, palliative care, oncology, cardiology, to present information in a way that's most understandable to patients. And then having these ongoing discussions about preferences with the idea that they should be frequent, they should be updated, they should be part of your regular care plan. Um, And that's where I'm spending my time right now is, can we promote goals of care discussions earlier in the course of illness. And so I've, there's been a lot of difficulty in implementing those kinds of protocols in the, um, the non-primary sector in the um, sort of specific specialty clinics like cancer and and cardiology and whatnot. Um, Those folks are really reluctant to have deep dives on goals of care. And so I've been thinking about where could we put that then Um, And the primary care relationship is one that I think is probably the most fruitful for having these goals of care. So you've got a relationship with, ideally, you would have a primary care provider for a long period of time. Even when you go off to see oncology and cardiology, you return to your primary care. And they can be the person that facilitates these conversations. So some of the work that I've focused on the last couple of years is developing interventions to promote advanced care planning and primary care setting, identifying people who have life-limiting illnesses, not necessarily that folks are going to die in the next year or two, um, but, you know, that have these disease courses that will limit their life. 
when can we start having conversations? Can we kind of prompt or nudge, right, using some mm-hmm. behavioral economics terms, primary care providers to begin the conversation? Because I also think it's a process, right? We talked about this a little bit, but just even we haven't talked too much about how patients feel about having these discussions. And there's not a ton of data, but in my own personal caregiving experience, um, patients tend to be reluctant to have them. So they're not often going to be the person who says, I think I'm going to die. Let's start having this conversation. Um, and so there needs to be a time to allow that to, uh, to develop and into, you know, a fruitful discussion for my, for my dad's example, you know, I had pushed him to get into a palliative care um, facility after he was diagnosed, which is earlier. Usually Mm -hmm. palliative care comes later in the course. But I knew that um, the palliative care physicians would be really good at thinking about quality of life. And so when he went to for the first time to see the palliative care physician, um, he started asking him about his goals of care. What, you know, what are going to be important to you as the disease progresses? What do you want us to, what do you know about your prognosis? Um, you know, what do you want us to know about how, you know, what your preferences are? And my dad got really upset. And he's, he was, why are you asking me this? I'm not going to die tomorrow. I'm not going to die next week. This is way too soon. And I remember thinking to myself, gosh, if anybody should be having a goals of care discussion, it's somebody who has stage four cancer. Mm. You know, this is very appropriate. <laughs> right, this is not inappropriate. Right. You know, and he's a smart man. He had a PhD in psychology. He, you know, it was clearly not an issue of not understanding the situation, but it was an issue of not wanting to understand the situation. Well, and and think- so, yeah, was, so he just, he was just like, no, we're not, ha- we're not doing this right now. But then the next time he came in, you know, he said, so I thought about what you asked me last time. And I've been thinking, you know, and so it, it was, it was like this kind <laughs> he of, he had to, he had to process that, right? He had to, he had to get there. And so I've, but he did anecdotally, I've, too. yes, he did. Anecdotally, I've heard from physicians that that's more common than not. And so there's clearly some process that has to go through on the patient's end as well to be able to think about and access and have these kinds of discussions. Well, it, it is, I think from that patient perspective, and I'm going back again to, to just an end of one with my, uh, my aunt who, um, you know, went into the, the hospital, felt like it was uh, flu-like symptoms and basically found out it was cancer and died three, three days later. It was that wow. progressed and it was really bad. And, and, and subsequent to that, you know, we've kind of found out through looking at her journal and different things, she had been having symptoms for months and months and months. But because of that, I, I think that psychological fear and that, you know, mm-hmm. death and, and all of that just refused to even kind of acknowledge any of those symptoms and to go in and see a physician. And, and, and those are real pieces that it's, we are human. And, and, and it's, as you said, we're, we aren't necessarily built to be able to to understand all of that and to, to be able to process our own emotions around that in a way that is beneficial for our long-term, you know, health yeah. and, 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 and satisfaction and success. Yeah. Yeah. So. And I think that there's, it's a real open question about whether it's beneficial to everyone to have it advanced care planning discussions. If you don't want to talk about it, is there a benefit in me making you, you know, or is it the best care for you to do what you think is best. And I think those are the kinds of questions we still have. Will we always be doing people a service to force them to take a look at their own mortality? Um, Will that always end up, you know, giving them a better perspective or will that actually stress, create greater undue stress? I mean, I think there's a lot to be learned about how do we approach the end of life, you know, in the best way possible. And are, and are there individual differences and can we 
develop flexible approaches and who knows what's best here. You know, we know patients don't always know what's best for them. So do we let them lead or, you know, or not? And so these are all the open questions that I think exist. I'll tell you what, I want to make sure that the discussions are happening in the doctor's offices and not in the, in the attorney's offices. I mean, I mm-hmm. filled out my healthcare directive uh, a couple of years ago, the first time, and it was in a, it was in a lawyer's office. It wasn't yeah. even with a physician. It was it was the checklist that that an attorney handed over to me and said, check, 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 just just work through this, and and I didn't even think about it until after the document was finalized. That shouldn't I be having this discussion with a physician? Shouldn't I actually be talking to a doctor rather than a lawyer about this? It seemed crazy. Yeah, and it's interesting. I'm not sure the physicians do that much better. Um, you know, because there's there's real bias in how you frame those choices. You know, we've had a couple experiences. My dad would be hospitalized. He didn't fill out an advanced directive. And, you know, they would say, do you want us to save your life if your heart stops? And so he's, oh, yeah, that sounds good. And then someone would come in and say, do you want us to pound on your chest and break your ribs in an attempt to bring you back to health? You know, and then he was like, no, I don't want that. And I'm like, you're talking about the same thing, you know? So, it, it, I mean, it matters what how you describe it, you oh, know? Yes. How All you frame of the framing it. effects there. So it's, you know, I don't know what the optimal version of that would be because clearly, again, a physician has a bias. Like, you know, some of them think, it's a terrible quality of life after CPR for someone who's terminally ill and other people think we should do this all the time and how the way you are the question is going to influence the response you get. Um, and is that, is that any better, you know, now that you have the response, but it was framed, you know, you chose X response because it was framed one way. Have we made an improvement? I don't think so, but yeah. Well, this this is a this has been a terrific discussion, Victoria, for a whole bunch of reasons. One, it's just really great uh, being in touch and and connecting with you on this topic. And I think it's it's really great that you share your observations with these listeners, with our listeners. Thank you for that. Well, thanks for giving me the opportunity. I appreciate it. It's you know I haven't done a lot of work in this area yet, but I have a lot of strong feelings about what needs to be done, and you know doors that are open. So it's fun to be able to talk about that and think about where we could go in as researchers. Yeah, I think it's an important component, as we said. It's, it's you know, these are decisions that have a tangible impact on not only quality of life, but also life and death in some instances. And so, it, you know, it's, 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 a, it's an area that definitely needs to be, be studied more and to, to be taken seriously. So thank you. Thank you for your work. And thanks for sharing. Yeah, well, and it was fun to talk to you guys. You guys make this really easy, so I appreciate it. And Kurt, it was nice to meet you. Nice to meet you after all these. I mean, I literally yeah. have heard your name for for <laughs> ten plus years and all the great stuff. So, so thank you, guys. Welcome to our grooving session, where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our Behavioral Grooves interview, have a free-flowing discussion on some of those topics, and whatever else comes into our bad at predicting the future brains. Yeah, yeah, we, that's, that's all of us. That, we, are, we are horrible at it. That's, that's, not our, that's not what humans are built for. Well, but, but it should be. I mean, evolutionary, we should be able to predict the future because that informs what we need to do today in order to survive, wouldn't you think? Should? Where are you getting this should? No, it's about just now. Like, feed me now. Sleep now. Mate now. Not mate tomorrow. <laughs> mate now. You know, give me food now. Give me sleep now. Give me shelter now. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> 
Uh, so, so what do you what do you think about that? <laughs> about sleeping now? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's what our listeners are hoping to do right now after after what we're we're talking about. But no, what about this idea that we are not good at predicting the future or our own happiness or really, yeah, which our- is tied into motivation then as well, right? Big blind spots and Victoria you know, just teed those up. We could do like an hour uh, just on how bad we are at knowing our own motivations, uh, understanding our own happiness and predicting the future. Oh my God. Actually an hour on each of those. (laughs) Probably. (laughs) Multiple hours, probably. Yeah. So, uh, so uh, I want to start just by noting that her work with Scott Jeffrey on, uh, on the incentive stuff is a, one of just some of the greatest examples in there about how we believe that money is going to be the best motivator for us. But of course, it's not. It isn't. It is just not even close. In in those situations that are those short-term, short-term incentives, incentives yeah. various different pieces, it, money is important. We understand that money actually does motivate, but it doesn't motivate to the impact and to the level that the non-cash is in right. those experiments. And when, you've seen that, and you've seen right. that. Lots and lots of times. And this is when money is okay, right? When when you're making enough money to get by, right? Mm-hmm. Then the incentive is really just the sugar on the cereal. And that should, um, and the, the best incentives are non-monetary. Okay. So uh, so I just, I just wanted to note that. And it was, I was really glad to go back to that because that's some of the work that I did with Victoria. You know, we were looking at, we were looking at incentives and, and um, goal setting and stuff like that. So with that inability or our, our not so good ability to predict the future and our happiness in that, what are some of the ramifications for that? What are some of the things as we're thinking through beyond, you know, maybe incentives and beyond end of life care, what are some of the aspects that, that poor predictability, our ability to, our our poor ability to predict uh, impacts. So the first thing that comes to my mind is when I think about my career, if I'm thinking about, uh, I've got a a job in a big company and I'm eyeing the next job, the next level up, whatever that is. And I just get snapshots of that. I really don't, you know, I don't have a big picture. I just get snapshots of seeing people um, and so then I start to construe the story of, well, this is what that job must be like. And so, so, I, so I want it. But those snapshots are like little descriptors. They're not really the narrative, as Victoria would, would talk about, right? It's not the story of what that job is really like on a day-to-day basis. Which is actually the other part that I found fascinating from this conversation, is her looking at the side effects and talking about how you frame those and do you use a narrative in order to tell that? Because again, to your point, we are really bad at predicting the future. And and our ability to translate, oh, sores in your mouth to what sores in your mouth actually means from a day-to-day living component, our brains aren't wired to be able to just take Oh, sores in my mouth means I might not be able to eat, which would be painful and horrid and all these other things too. Oh, it's sores in my mouth. And and a lot of that is because there's uncertainty about it. But I think a lot of it also comes into our lack of ability to to have a future right. predicting mind. And and Victoria's example about uh, you know, saying 
okay, sores in your mouth could mean this, because here's someone who got sores in their mouth so badly that for weeks they were just eating through a straw because they were, it was much too painful for them to actually chew food and swallow food. And like, oh, okay, so that's different than just you're going to get sores in your mouth. That's yes. a very different, the, the descriptor versus the story or the narrative, it makes a big difference. And, and so I'm saying in, in a career perspective, we get these little descriptors, these snapshots. You see, you see super cool Joe standing up in front of the, of the um, conference room making this great presentation, and you go, oh, I want that job. That's right. cool. Right. Those podcasters who are doing that awesome <laughs> podcast <laughs> called Behavioral Grooves, and wow, wouldn't that be a great job to have? Everybody wants to be a podcaster. But you don't understand the hours that go into the research, the yeah. setting up of the uh, interviews, the the, the traffic that I ran into coming to the studio today, editing that you do all of the time. <laughs> don't think right. We don't we don't think about that because we don't have the story behind it. We don't know? have that narrative. Yeah, I think about that. We do work around communicating incentive plans, and it might be oh, your yeah. your quarterly or your annual incentive plan. And again, like that, uh, you know, the element of sores in your mouth. We typically just say. Here is your plan. Here are the the descriptors, here, right? It's the descriptors. Here is if you reach goal, you will get X. If you're five percent over goal, you'll get X times, you know, whatever the that rate is. Mm-hmm. And, it, and so, so you've got all the knowledge, right? You uh, have all of the knowledge. The information it, is there, but I think people have a hard time translating. And this isn't necessarily about future predicting, but it's about so. So what? How does that, what do I need to do now? And taking those descriptors yeah. and, and applying it back into what you're doing. So we have done work where we've actually done this with a few clients where instead of just having plain, boring stats and figures up there, we create a persona. We create, a, you know, you know Jana, who Jana is a, a rep and she is this, you know, typically falls within the top, you know, 30% of people. And, but wow, with this new incentive plan, here is what Jana is going to do, or this is Jana's story. And we actually do it from a first person sometimes. Okay. Bringing that narrative in, which all of a sudden makes that, oh, I am now having, I product, product B is 30% of my incentive plan. Well, what does that mean? Well, now, you know, having that story of, of Jana and talking about wow with 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 product B, I'm definitely gonna, I'm going to have to look at different clients, and I'm going to have to, you know, set up my sales calls differently, and I'm going to have to do it. So it goes well beyond the incentive plan, but it goes into what do you do? How does a rep use that incentive plan? And I think we don't do that enough, particularly in incentive plans, which I'm kind of really familiar with. But just in general, whenever there's a change coming across within an organization. This is how your life might change. This is how your your life might change. And I think it gets into going back to some of the stuff that we heard at the University of Penn around norms. How can you set up the injunctive norm for what that future should be? And And, and describe it, right? But because you're using a descriptive norm, even if it is a a made-up person by showing the actual yeah. components. And I don't know if that would actually be a, a real thing. I think that'd be interesting to hear back from any of those. If if having a a modeled person that isn't real, is that then become a descriptive norm or is that an injunctive norm? 
Okay, we'll that, have to that, go back yeah. and, and ask Christina or, but that, that, or, or but, Oregon. Yeah. But I, yeah, I think that that's his, uh, it's an interesting question because we're talking about it, and, and Victoria has been talking about this these these narratives, uh, taking just the descriptors of the future and turning them into narratives, are based on real people and right. real experiences, right? Um, and then I loved that she brings up the most important question is, which are the stories that you're going to bring to the patient? What are the stories? So if we take it into our, our, um, our incentive world or our career world, what is the story that I'm going to give about this job? Or what is the story that's going to be about this, this persona uh, acting and changing her behavior uh, as a sales rep in order to reach her goals and achieve in the incentive. And again, there's an ethical component to this. Yes. When she's talking about this, because you could create the narrative where it is so horrific, bring up those those stories yeah. that nobody's going to do the procedure, or you could bring up the story that's so easy and well that everybody's going to do those stories. And so what's, where's our obligation to to have predict hope or really, you know, reality or reality. a whole different piece. Oh yeah. But going into, and those are in, in those situations, sometimes life and death, sometimes, you know, quality yeah. of life, definitely. But even there's an ethical component to think about what is the story you tell around that, that sales incentive? Is it all, you know, wonderful glory? Does Jana, you know, always make, you know, president's club and everything right, else right. because of all this work because she she's does. perfect and and so we want this this story to be aspirational to be you know in this perfection kind of a, a model or is it better to paint a more realistic story right and, and especially to your, relative to me right and and go, thinking about that mentor component or you're you're looking to find out hey that's the job i want and as as the mentor right Right, mentee, mentor. Yeah, I'm getting, I'm getting. Well, confused. I, the mentee is the one who's being mentored. Right. So, as a mentor, what, what's the narrative I tell the mentee? Do I? Right. Because right. we often want to highlight the best of our lives. It's, <laughs> it's the Facebook, Instagram world that we live in. Right. We don't no. show the shitty parts of our life. <laughs> oh no. We don't. We don't do that. And, and the same thing, I think, can happen in that mentor-mentee thing where you don't talk about the hours of editing the podcast. You don't talk about getting stuck in traffic or trying to, wow, we had you know that guest who didn't show up and now we're scrambling to find something to fill in and the stress that goes out with that or wow, Squadcast didn't you know, necessarily work this time. And how do we, how do we recover that, that audio that we just <laughs> right. did that we're never going to be able to repeat? And right. wow, sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't. So well, I think back to uh, this discussion of the, of the narrative versus the snapshot or the descriptors. Uh, when I was in college, I was in L.A. and interviewed with the vice president of marketing for Columbia Records. And I was looking for an internship, but he was two hours late. And so I just sat in the, in the waiting room, just waiting. And he, and he finally comes in and he's kind of bleary eyed and, you know, looks pretty, you know, three sheets to the wind still. And he said, oh yeah, I was at this, uh, you know, Bette Midler had a big party last night and I got involved in this conversation with Sting that just took two hours and, you know, there's a lot of cocaine and, and interesting, so these are, of course, these are just snapshots. It really wasn't the whole story of what his whole life was like or what his job was like, but those snapshots indicated to me, I don't want this job. I never <laughs> want to do this job. I don't, I don't want to, you know, I, I don't, that, that, as sexy as he was trying to make it sound, 
it totally turned me off to the industry. So Dan Gilbert has done a lot of work on this and yeah. about you know predicting our future happiness and how bad we are at it. And he talks about the snapshot component. And one of the things that he said one time, and I'm going to totally mess this up, but he was talking about the idea of when we predict the future, we're to predict it to that level of specificity that we need. Something did I, like did that. I say that yeah, word right? Close, I, close I, enough. You know, that's, <laughs> that's me, right? We'll that's get why, it. That's I why you're here. We have good listeners. <laughs> <laughs> they understand that, you know, if I'm looking out a year to have that, that, that level of detail would take a year to, to, <laughs> to, right. to, to think about that. Cause I got to think about, well, what happens then? And then, and then, and then. So we, end which up is crazy, fast, which we end up fast forwarding. And we only slow down at certain spots. It's those snapshots that we take along the way. And so we're missing out on what life is really like. Like, like going to the Eiffel Tower. All, we, all, we're, all we're envisioning is standing in front of the Eiffel Tower on a beautiful sunny day and having our, our you know, picture taken. With our family and everybody smiling and happy and wow, isn't this it's so a great, amazing. Yeah. Isn't this a great component? We're missing, wow, it took us two hours in traffic, and wow, all these people around us, and they're stinky, and we didn't get food before we left, and the kids are hungry, (laughs) and it's crazy. And not saying that it's it's always going to necessarily be a negative on that. There could be things where we think that are bad, and they actually turn out to be better. You, You know, you break an arm or, or something, or you have some horrible tragedy happen, but then, wow... All these people that I haven't talked to in years reach out and yeah. they're, you know, and I rekindle these friendships that I had. And wow, I find all these wonderful, you know, different community that I'm now a part of because of whatever happened to me. And we don't anticipate all those things. And, and frankly, it's very difficult to anticipate those. And that's why it's great to have the story of this is what it was like from someone who has been through that or is living through that so that you can say, well, what's, what's your life like with the broken arm? Oh my gosh, I've, you know, it's been really great for reconnecting with all these friends. Oh, I didn't expect that that would be part of it. So that that's something that we can, we can educate ourselves by talking to people who are living the future that we're anticipating. Yeah. Looking at those real life narratives of people who have gone through that experience. Now, yeah. granted your experience is singular. It's going to be different. We are going to have yes. unique aspects of it. But we need not discount the experiences of others. But it's that base rate, right? And and again, we talk, mm-hmm. you know, Victoria yeah. talks about this in understanding the base rate versus an expert opinion. Yeah. And I thought, again, you can we could talk for hours on this. So how much of our worldview is informed by talking to an expert? Uh, or talking to maybe not even an expert, or, talking or, to or relying on expert data, or relying on expert data, but not looking at the base rates for how things actually happen. Right. Um, so going back, so is somebody who broke their arm? Are they an expert um, that we talk to, and they're an N of one versus <laughs> right. looking right. at the N of thousands of people who have their arm broken? And that's hard, and that's a difficult component, and and it's not always readily available. But we certainly could look at safety rates, uh, driving your car versus flying in an airplane. We could certainly look at the risk of driving in a car is significantly higher than flying in an airplane because we've got the data on it. And yet we know most people are more scared of flying in an airplane than they are of driving in a car. And yet we understand the base rates. It is much safer to fly 
than it is to drive. Yeah. And, and again, vividness, availability bias, there's all kinds of things that you are know, contributing control to that. versus not control, yeah. variety of different factors. Yeah. That being said, I think going back to, to, to something that Annie Duke said, you know, do we want to live a life in uh, that's based on what is real and what's the reality that's happening out there? The matrix or not the matrix. Right. right. And, and to a certain degree, I think we want to have that reality. We want to be based in this is the factual world that we're living in. This is this is the question about hope, but right? then this, it, gets it gets into but it gets back to Victoria. Yeah, and there are times I think in our life where maybe that reality isn't something that we actually want. We don't want to know that there's only a twelve percent chance of survival. We we don't want to know that. Hey, I am more likely to fail starting this business than succeed, because those are going to stop us from having hope. And I think hope is a really human element that is vital to us as being human. And I think that's something that we cannot discount. And so sometimes I think from a mere happiness, survival, quality of life, hope for the future, I think sometimes we just have to discount base rates. Yeah. I don't know when. I don't know how. That's a that's a complicated question because I've been thinking about that since we talked to Victoria, and I I don't have a clear uh, perspective on that. I don't think so. So, listeners, if you do have a clear idea of that, please let please us know. Let us know. So, I got a music question for you. No, you don't. I you do. Never have music questions. This is a super easy one. Too. All right. Yeah, super easy. Like we're right. just going to answer this like instantly, right? Okay. Got okay. it. <laughs> okay. So, uh, I've read some research recently that the music that impacts us that we take in between the time that we're 11 and 16. 11 and 16. Yeah, years old. Uh, they, it's actually a little bit different for girls than it is for boys, slightly different, but let's just say that's the range. That that, is the, that leaves the biggest imprint on us, that we are more likely, in general, to go back to our, the music that impacted us and hit us between 11 and 16 than we are any other time in our life. Okay. So... Is that the case for you? First, that's first part, part one. And then part two is, then what is some of that music? All right. So 1978 to 1983, I was probably listening to Van Halen, Black Sabbath, Ozzy Osbourne, Styx, you know, my heavy metal phase. And to this day, I mean, I still listen to it, but it is not my go-to. It is not the, the one where I go back to. It's not. No. No, you, you never, we, we've never talked about Ozzy Osbourne or Van Halen on the podcast. You, you talk about The Cure or... Uh, I go back to my, my, my college days, my, oh, yeah. my later from maybe a senior in high school where I started to, to get into some of those through college and even beyond those next few years, you know, going back to grad school and various components after that. Hmm. So yeah, I would disagree. I would say no. It doesn't. I, it do, that that research isn't um, accurate for your life experience. I fall outside of the parameters. I am a <laughs> standard deviation or two from the norm in that. Maybe okay. Okay. Good. How about you? Do you your eleven to sixteen year? I'm because right it's on right it. in that, that the I'm stuff right that it. you talk about. Absolutely. I learned how to play guitar when I was eleven years old, and so that music that I was listening to between 11 and 16 is 
I listen to a lot. I listen to that stuff a lot, put lots of hours in. In fact, the the summer that I was 13, I was playing guitar four or five hours every day. Okay. So I was, and I was learning those songs. I was experimenting with the instrument and the music that I was listening to was absolutely connected to the effort that I was putting in. So I, I was doing some serious imprinting at that time. So, but do you listen to that music today? Is it yeah, still impactful for you? Well, it's still, it's still my go-to. I, I shouldn't say my go-to, but it still has this very special... Uh, emotional center for me that when I'm looking for a particular um, emotional connection to uh, to part of me, music is that connector. It's the conduit, and that's the music that I go to. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I will still listen to you know a, a Black Sabbath or an Ozzy Osbourne song or a you know a, a Sticks or something like that, and I, I do like that music, but it is definitely not a go-to, and I don't necessarily feel like there's an emotional connection that really? brings me back wow. to to that. Probably because it was you know a thirteen-year-old sitting in a bedroom with an <laughs> album, you know, reading the back and being you know downcast and thirteen-year-old. So, but not that- the not the. The memories that, you know, I, I think of Depeche Mode and I think of, you know, being at a dance, uh, you know, at Interesting. a uh, dance where, where they're, they're, they're playing that music and it's going and there's these lights and people and it's fun and I don't know. Okay. Well, that, I mean, uh, you're outside the standard deviation. Thing. I'm always outside the standard deviation. <laughs> With your booba mind that is so <laughs> geeky on some things. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, listeners, thank you for, for listening, and hopefully you enjoyed this. If you did, as always, please go out, leave a review. We really appreciate it. And uh, we appreciate just hearing from you as well. So send us a note, Twitter, LinkedIn, you know, email. It's all in the show notes. So with that, thank you.